0: Well, I guess that'll do till the singers can get here. <laughs> wow, man, that was, that was choice, wasn't it? Did y'all enjoy that tonight? Amen. Thanks for making the drive, y'all. It's good to see you in, uh, in, in my old stomping grounds here. Welcome. All right, so as Pastor Jeff was uh, just saying, as we've been talking about now for two days... This is a conference, of course, on dispensationalism, and as Pastor Jeff was uh, so eloquently saying yesterday morning, that this thing of dispensationalism is a big honkin' deal, and, and the reason that it's a big honkin' deal is because it affects so many things in terms of our approach to the Bible and so many things in terms of our interpretation of the Bible. And one of the things that we value in this Living Faith Fellowship is not removing the ancient landmarks in Scripture. And we believe that God has called us to earnestly contend for the faith. Anybody here believe that? We better in these last days be ready to do that, to earnestly contend for For the faith, I I realize that most of you uh, weren't able to be here this morning because you have jobs and responsibilities or school or or whatever. Uh, But man, I I just really appreciated the way that uh, Pastor Shelby ended his session this morning. Uh, Through tears, (laughs) he was urging us in the midst of all of what we 're talking about in this thing of dispensationalism, to not lose the fact that we 've been called to love, and you know i i i I, I want to just kind of piggyback on that for just just a second. This is really not the message but but boy, I think that was such an important thing. I think it 's important for all of us to get our heads wrapped around this. Because I've noticed through the years that it's very easy for those of us who are contending for the faith to allow ourselves to become contentious. it's, It's real easy for those of us who are championing a biblical cause Become very caustic, and I think it would be a mistake for us to talk about earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints this week. And we all leave here this week with our dispensations right, and yet our disposition wrong. And 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 man, I, I listen. If that in any way sounds like I'm I'm talking about us hiding the truth. I'm not talking about us hiding the truth one bit. No, we nail the truth, and we unashamedly call out error, and yet I believe it's possible to be able to speak truth like Jesus did in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22, and people wonder at the gracious words that proceed out of our mouth. You have ears to hear that? I, I, I'm talking about never compromising truth and yet at the same time never compromising grace. <laughs> I, I, I'm talking about us entreating people toward a biblical view of the Bible without treating them unbiblically. And and again, I, I, I feel like in the midst of what we're doing in the certainty conference, and man, I couldn't be more about it. And yet at the same time, man, let's don't allow ourselves to become caustic, to become contentious, to have dispositions that are unlike the character of christ because i I really do believe that he still wants us to be known by our love and more about what we're for than what we're against and what we are for is a biblical view of the bible and we will die on that hill and that's what this thing of dispensationalism is really all about um, because of uh, the, the, the practical ramifications of disp- dispensationalism, uh, what we believe is that the Bible actually interprets itself. And that's one of the, the key tenets of, of dispensationalism is that we take a literal approach to the Bible. We we believe that the church is something different than the nation of Israel. And it is very, very distinct. And God will, in fact, fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel in terms of prophecy... We believe that we are living in the church age. We believe that the church age concludes with the rapture, which ushers in the tribulation period, which concludes with the second coming of Christ, which ushers in the literal millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are some of the things that we're we're all about. But again, when we get to the practical ramifications of dispensationalism, it is... an approach to the Bible that allows the Bible to interpret itself. And in that process of the Bible explaining itself, it's very obvious that God has laid out in the Bible, and Pastor Jeff mentioned this on Sunday morning, three simultaneous applications What Pastor Jeff said on Sunday morning, and I think this is review for most of the people in this room, is that one of the applications is the historical. And we can go back and see in our Old Testament that God was laying out history, and he was recording it, and all of that history has an application, a devotional application to our life, and everybody on this planet, pretty much in Christianity, would go with that. And yet as dispensationalists, we would see another layer of application that comes between those that we would call the doctrinal or the prophetic application. And and this is really the nuts and bolts of why that is actually in the Bible. And what we find in that application is that when God was recording that history in the Old Testament, he was doing it according to a fashion he was doing it because and wording it in such a way because it is pointing to something that he's trying to teach us doctrinally, something that would have a, a prophetic application. And so what I am going to attempt to do in the next several nights is go to an Old Testament passage and apply it from a very dispensational standpoint. With this interpretation, allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible, allowing it to just say what it says and point to that prophetic application. And in this passage that I'm going to take you to, what we're going to find is that even in this passage, he's actually teaching us dispensationalism. Now, what I've been uh, talking about for the last, uh, well, man, it seems like I've been here forever. (laughs) What we started talking about last night is what I would call applied dispensationalism. And that's what we're going to get into once again tonight, just a very practical approach to this thing of of dispensationalism. And and last night... we saw that dispensationalism revealed biblically in some supernatural ways. And last night, first of all, we saw that dispensationalism was revealed through a seemingly random Old Testament genealogy. We then saw it through the order of the books that bring us to the pinnacle of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. And now tonight, we're going to see dispensationalism revealed biblically in another supernatural way, through an incredible portrait in God's Old Testament art gallery. And let's pray together. Lord, I I pray that as we go down this path tonight, that you will open our eyes that you will pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, our eyes being enlightened. As David prayed, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. And Lord, I pray that as dispensationalists, that our confidence in your word, will be enhanced tonight and, and that our lives will be changed. I, I pray that in the midst of all of the information that we're, we're getting, that, that you will uh, allow there to be transformation this week. May we, by the time we put a bow in this on Wednesday night, Lord, I, I pray that our lives... will be be different because of the truth that you have shown us and in your incredible book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our God, of course, has all kinds of amazing qualities. You know, we could just start going through the list. We could say that he is a God of supreme holiness, that he is a God of unending and infinite love, that he he is a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom, and we could go on and on and on. But one of the qualities that we seldom talk about is the fact that God is also an amazing artist. And man, we, we see that in creation, don't we? You know, we look at, you know, the works that artists do as they, you know, paint these things, and all they're doing is just copying what the greatest artist has ever done. Our God is just an incredible artist. And again, we see it in creation, but we also see it in his word. And many times what God does is he he takes a truth that he knows transcends what can be grasped through a mere explanation of words. And what he will do is he will take his words and form them into pictures for us so that he can take some invisible, intangible, infinite truth and paint this picture and say, that's what I'm talking about right there. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. And in my estimation, one of the most beautiful portraits in God's Old Testament art gallery is the one that he painted in Proverbs 31 that's entitled The Virtuous Woman. And so why don't you take your Bible tonight and let's go to Proverbs 31 and let's take a very dispensational view toward this passage, recognizing that there's three layers of application here, and yet what God is going to do is he is going to interpret this passage by the Bible. And so let's, let's first of all, let's talk about her biblical identity, her biblical identity. Identity, the the biblical identity of this virtuous woman that we hear so much about in Proverbs 31. Who is she really? Now, notice that Solomon begins with a question in verse 10. He he says, Who can find a virtuous woman? Okay, now let's just put the brakes on for just a second. Let me remind you of a, a key. Passage of scripture in terms of us having a dispensational view of of scripture, and that passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 through 13. And, And what this passage is basically all about is the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God that is revealed in the Bible. And what he's telling us in this passage is that his wisdom is so incredible that it transcends human eyes, and our human eyes cannot see the truth of God, and our human ears cannot hear the truth of God. These human minds cannot comprehend the truth of God. It transcends all of that. He says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for them that love him. And man, have I heard some of the most incredible sermons in the world off of that verse talking about heaven and i'm telling you y'all you ain't seen nothing Eye has not seen nor ear heard and you know what i believe that about heaven but that passage ain't nothing about heaven right there it's about the wisdom of god and he's saying you ain't smart enough to get it But, verse 10, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, and the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. You can't know it, but God does want to reveal it to you. And he reveals it to us by his Spirit. And there's a very Calculated way that the Spirit does it. It's not just do 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 do. You know, He just works His way in and whoo, reveals it. What He says in verse thirteen is that He reveals it as we compare spiritual things with spiritual things. The way that we would understand that is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. That is a dispensational view of the Bible. We believe it interprets itself. God wants us to know it, but it has to be revealed to us. And so when Solomon begins this passage in Proverbs 31 and verse 10, and he asks the question, who can find a virtuous woman? Well... If if, if I were to to say to you, let's just take that literally and and let's see if we can find a virtuous woman in the Bible. Who can find one? And and you know what we would find if we were going to go on this search to just see in the Bible... Where we could find a virtuous woman, listen, of the hundreds and hundreds of women in the Bible, do you understand that there is only one woman who is actually identified as a virtuous woman? Hey, there may have been a lot of other women that were, but there's only one woman that was actually identified as the virtuous woman. And you know who she is? She is Ruth. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11 says, For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Now, last night as we were working through 20 books of the Old Testament, uh, we, we, we got to the book of Ruth last night, and we told her story. How many of you were not here last night? Okay, quite a few, and I'm sure there's people online That are watching that didn't get to see or hear last night. So let me just quickly, this doesn't take long, let me just quickly tell you the story of Ruth and the significance of this story. Okay, so Ruth is a Gentile from a cursed race. She's a Moabitess, and so she is separated from God and his promises, and she's living at a time of famine. But one day, she hears good news from a far land that God has visited his people in Bethlehem and giving them bread. And upon hearing that good news, she leaves her family, she leaves her land, she leaves everything that she holds dear, and she makes a beeline for Bethlehem where she goes and partakes of that bread. And she goes to work in the harvest field once she gets there. And without her realizing it, her Jewish kinsman, Redeemer, sees her in that field, doesn't know who she is, but he falls head over heels in love with her. He takes her out of the harvest field, makes her his bride, and they live happily ever after. And that's the story of Ruth. And yet, like we saw last night, that story, the greatest love story I think that could possibly be written, that story is actually our story. Because we are from a cursed race we call the human race. And we are separated from God and his promises. And so it has left our souls famished. And yet one day, somebody gave us good news that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem and giving them bread. And the bread of life was born in Bethlehem. And upon hearing the good news of Jesus wanting to be the bread of life, we left everything that we held dear and made a beeline for the one in Bethlehem, and we partook of that bread. And now he has us in his harvest field, and we are awaiting the marriage, him to take us out of that harvest field to consummate The the marriage. And listen, that is why that book of the Bible is is sitting there, because it is a picture. Because God knew that in Proverbs 31, old King Solomon was going to ask a question. He knew that he would ask, who can find a virtuous woman? And God knew that if he inspired Solomon to ask that, that there might be some simple-minded people that would just believe the Bible and not leave the Bible for their definitions, and start looking to see if we could find a virtuous woman, and so that those simple-minded people didn't have any confusion about who he meant, God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to reserve that title for just one woman, and I'm going to make it so clear who she pictures, that my gentile bride the church doesn't miss the connection you say okay no wait just a minute now I, you know I, I always thought that proverbs 31 what, this virtuous woman what god was doing was giving a role model for being a, a, a godly industrious wife and, and mother and yeah it's that from a historical standpoint, and if that's all we want to do is just go and grab the history and try to make some applications for being a good wife and a good mother, I mean that, that that's cool. But at the same time, there is a whole nother layer of application that if we will take the Bible literally and let the Bible interpret it itself, because what God is doing in this passage is He is showing us who we are as Christ's church. And he's showing us what it is that he wants us to be. He's showing us in this passage what it is that he wants us to do. And I think that by the time we make our way through these verses, I think that'll be very, very clear to to all of us. But for those of you that may be listening, that aren't from a dispensational background, maybe this kind of approach to the Bible is something new for you, and maybe you're struggling with that, and we get that, but let let me remind you that this picture that we're talking about in Proverbs 31 is something that is repeated in the New Testament. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but I I think for clarity, I think we need to say it. In in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, What God does in this passage is he begins to lay out the responsibilities for wives the responsibilities for husbands. And he's just going verse by verse, man, laying this whole thing out. And then he gets to verse 32 and bam, you know what God does? In the midst of all of this teaching to and about husbands and wives and their responsibilities, he comes to verse 32 and he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. What? I I thought, you were, I thought you were talking to husbands and wives. Yeah, that too. But what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. And he clearly defines in this passage that Christ is our husband and the church is his bride. Paul picks up on that that same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, where he's talking about the fact that when we came to Christ, that we were espoused to him as our one husband. And what he said that he wants to do is that he wanted to make sure that as the apostle to the church, the apostle to the Gentiles, that when he walks us up the aisle to present us as the bride of christ that we are a chaste virgin the way we could say it is that he could present us as a virtuous woman and i want you to look at the question again in proverbs 31 and verse 10 who can find a virtuous woman listen now for her price is far above rubies now if you're there in proverbs chapter 21 you if you look back at verse 1 and we're not going to take the time to go through the proof of all of this, but King Lemuel, that's mentioned in verse 1 as the one that is writing this chapter, is none other than King Solomon. And boy, you talk about somebody that was on the lookout for a virtuous woman, and you talk about somebody that understood what a rare commodity she actually was. Man, it was Solomon, because according to 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and all I can say about that is is you would have to have the wealth of Solomon to buy that much makeup. <laughs> but 700 wives and 300 concubines is a total of what, y'all? A, a thousand. I mean, here's a guy who had s- learned some things about women the hard way. <laughs> and, and you know what he learned, y'all? That there wasn't one virtuous woman in a thousand. Because you know what 1 Kings eleven three goes on to say about those 700 wives and 300 concubines? It, it says they turned away his heart after other gods. And that's why by the time Solomon penned the book of Ecclesiastes, after doing it all, after having it all, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets. And listen, y'all, he literally had a thousand of those. Behold, this I have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among those, that's a thousand, have I not found. Check it out. Old Solomon says there wasn't one in a thousand. So so listen very carefully. Solomon, and think about who he is right now, who is he? He's the son of David, which is the title given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Solomon, of course, is a picture of Christ who sat on the throne of David, his father, and pictures Christ ruling and reigning in his millennial kingdom. And he finally found a virtuous woman, y'all. In the very next book of the Bible, after writing Ecclesiastes, in the next book, in the book of Song of Solomon, he finds this woman. And, you know, that's why he had that song in his mouth, because he found the love of his life. He finally found that woman whose price is far above rubies, and he takes her to be his bride. And you know who she is, man? She is a Gentile of all things. Song of Solomon 6.13 says that she is a Gentile Shulamite. And again, you see that, that virtuous woman is an incredible picture. The Jewish king of Israel, known as the son of David, taking a Gentile bride to be his lawful wedded wife. And so Solomon had learned that if you find a virtuous woman, you have found one whose price is far above rubies because, buddy, there's not one in a thousand. But I want you to think about that phrase at the end of verse 10 for a second. It says, for her... What's the next word? Her price... Is far above rubies. Do you, do you realize that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20 says that, that the reason that you and I, as members of the Bride of Christ, are not our own is because we were bought with a what? We were bought with. With a price. And do you have any idea what price the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to pay to make us his bride? Well, you know, it's hard to put into words. And so let me borrow some. It's like Solomon said in verse 10. It's a price that is far above rubies. And the question, it forces you to ask, okay, why rubies? In other words, what is the connection of this price to be paid for this virtuous woman? Why the connection to rubies? Real quick, first of all, rubies are rare. Anybody as a kid playing in the dirt, you ever find a ruby? Anybody in all the years as you're you know getting your flower beds all mulched and you know. all anybody ever find a, a a ruby we call rubies a a precious jewel because they are a rare commodity rubies are rare secondly the price for this woman is likened to the price of rubies because rubies are costly and of course they're costly because of their rarity their scarcity but but the truth is, you know what, there's a lot of precious jewels that are rare, scarce and costly. I mean, we, we could talk diamonds, we could talk sapphires, we could talk emeralds. So, so why rubies? Well, thirdly, because rubies are red. And I'll listen now, the price that was required for the Jewish king of Israel to pay, to redeem us so that we could be his bride. Listen, y'all, was a substance that wasn't just as rare as rubies or even more rare than rubies. It was far more than rubies. In fact, it was infinitely more than rubies. And it wasn't a substance that was just as costly as rubies or even More costly than rubies, but far more costly than rubies. In fact, infinitely more costly than rubies. I I mean, if you were to translate that price into the price of silver and gold, listen, there isn't another person who has ever lived that could possibly afford it. I mean, you would have to be the son of David, to possess that kind of wealth. And our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world looking for a bride, but the dowry that was set for her required a substance that was infinitely more rare than rubies and infinitely more costly than rubies and infinitely more red than rubies because the substance was none other than the blood of God. And only the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, possessed the wealth to pay the price to redeem us. And that's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things... As silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, talking about the sinful nature that we inherited from our father and his father before him. And Peter says, You weren't redeemed by any of that junk because you couldn't be redeemed with that. But with, he says, the precious blood of Christ, which is far more precious than all of the silver and gold and every precious stone in the world. And listen, y'all, once, once you begin to see what's happening in Proverbs 31 and you begin to see who this woman actually is, man, you... You come to this passage and it's no longer something that we men just breeze over because that's a bunch of girly stuff. What we find is that this is one of the clearest and most concise and precise explanations in the entire Bible of what our Lord Jesus Christ expects us as his bride to be and to do. And that's why we're looking at this. Because a dispensational view of interpreting the scripture brings us to this interpretation. And God is laying out, again, one of the clearest explanations of what it is that you and I in these last days as the bride of Christ need to be and to do. And if, if we could leave this conference... Understanding dispensations and the dispensational approach and we as the body of Christ and as the bride of Christ could get to the place to where we match this woman I'd say this would be one whale of a conference and so we've identified her we've seen her biblical identity The Proverbs 31 virtuous woman, she's none other than the bride of Christ. All of us who have been bought with that price that is far above rubies, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. She is us. That's her biblical identity. And let's look next at her beautiful character. I mean, what is it in this woman... Chosen to be the bride of Christ that he's looking for. What is it that that he intends for us to be as his virtuous woman? What is her character? Verse 11 lets us know that, first of all, this virtuous woman is a woman that can be trusted. She can be trusted. Verse 11 says, "The, the heart of her husband to safely trust in her. And let me just say from the get-go that about everything else that our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, wants from us and expects from us is not only to be able to trust us, but to safely trust us. Look at verse 11 again. He he, he doesn't just want to know in his mind. He wants to be able to trust in his heart that the relationship that he has with us is safe. He he never wants to have to think about that. He, He never wants to have to wonder about that. He he never wants to have to work through that in his mind. I I ask you tonight, does your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, have that trust in his heart concerning you? A a, a virtuous woman is, is a woman of such character that she has the ability to flood the heart of her husband with unquestionable trust. You see, folks, our Lord's intention in redeeming us, as wonderful as heaven is, and I'm excited to go there, it wasn't just to take us to heaven someday. It wasn't just so we could sit on clouds and wear golden slippers and and play harps. He wanted us to be his bride. He, he wants to have a personal, intimate, love relationship with us, and he's serious about it. Uh, Sherry and I just, whatever, last week, I guess, Uh, celebrated uh, 37 years of of marriage. And 37 years ago, I, I stood at an altar like this, and I took Sherry to be my bride. And in those vows, what she said was, and forsaking all others, I keep only unto him as long as we both shall live. Okay. And now listen, she was willing to say that Not because I was rescuing her from singleness. Not because I was looking for someone to wash my clothes. (laughs) Not because I was looking for someone to cook my meals. She was willing to say those things because I loved her and I wanted to have a personal, intimate, love relationship with her for the rest of my life. And listen, y'all, when we took the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, he wasn't just wanting to be our little fire escape from hell. I love the fact I'm not going to hell, y'all. And if you don't get saved, you're going there, okay? There is motivation. (laughs) But he didn't want to simply be our fire escape, man. He became our husband because he wanted a relationship with us. And you know what he wants and expects from us now, ma'am? For us to have forsaken all others and keep only unto him all the days of our life. You, You see, before he saved us, But before we became his bride, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 says that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And verse 3 says that we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. From heaven's perspective, y'all, we were a bunch of street walking tramps we were godless depraved degenerate vile and wicked sinners and you know what happened Our Lord Jesus Christ reached down into the muck and the mire of this world and all of the filth and the wretchedness of all of our sinfulness. And according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he translated us or transferred us out of the kingdom of this dark world and placed us into the kingdom of his dear son, having redeemed us Through his blood and forgave us every one of our sins. Listen, y'all, that's how we became his bride. And now that we have, you know what he calls it when we go back and we start befriending the world system? Anybody know? How about James 4.4? You know what he says? He, He calls it, adultery because we're his now he bought us and paid for us with his own blood let let me ask the the men that are here Uh, would would it be a problem at all for you if you found out for the last however many years that your wife has been rendezvousing behind your back with one of her old boyfriends would would that get on anybody's uh, radar here Let me tell you, that's exactly the way our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, sees it. Every time we allow ourselves to go back into this world system, to gratify our flesh, to seek its approval, or when we long to be connected to it again, listen, y'all, he sees it as adultery. Spiritual adultery. Listen, we, we, we all live in this world, and, and our, our, our husband certainly knows that. And he knows that, that our old boyfriends, as it were, are always going to continue to try to hit on us every single day. But you know how he prayed for us in John chapter 17 and verse 15? Not that they would be taken away, but that we wouldn't have the desire for them now that we have taken him To be our husband. You know what his heart wants more than anything else? His heart wants to know that he can safely trust us. So, so that it's not even a thought about us loving the world, so that there's never a reason that he needs to wonder about us flirting with it or the world ever turning our head much less turning our heart. And, and I again I ask you tonight: does the heart of your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, does it safely, trust you. Let's let's just think back at the last month. Okay, he's watched everything that we've done in the last month. He he knows every thought that we've had. He he knows every desire we've had. Let, let, Let me just ask you, in the past month, what have you done? To the heart of your husband can his heart safely trust you? And notice the last part of verse eleven: so that he he shall have no need of spoil. Jesus gave us a very clear understanding of this word spoil" in Luke chapter 11 and verse 22 where he talked about the merchandise or goods that are taken when someone is overcome of a stronger opponent. In, in other words, it, it, it's goods and wealth that are acquired through an outside source. And the point of verse 11 here in Proverbs is that the husband of a virtuous woman never needs to concern himself with overcoming someone to amass wealth because he has a bride who can even be trusted with his money. Do you realize, folks, that as the bride of Christ, we don't have any money? We're all just managers or stewards of what is his. And can I ask you tonight, can you be trusted with your husband's money? I, I know this is about dispensationalism, but since we're taking this dispensational approach, which is a literal approach, let me just let me just talk to you straight for just a minute. You know, some of you probably wonder, Why it is that some of the people around you are so pumped about the word of God. They get so pumped about serving God, fulfilling the ministry, uh, the mission, mission and and, and involving their life in, in, in ministry. You look at that and you just, you don't seem to get it. And you know what the problem a lot of us are having is? We keep running into this little principle that our Lord laid down in Luke chapter 16 and verse 11, because you know what he said? He said that if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, money or riches, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And you know what the true riches are, folks? The true riches are eternal things. And we say this all the time. It's the word of God and the souls of men. And he's saying, if I can't trust you with these dirty, stinking, tangible things, these, these, this money and riches, do you think I'm going to trust you with the truth of my eternal word or trust you with the souls of eternal people? And I want to say to you, listen, listen, I don't pastor this church anymore. So I've got nothing whatsoever to gain, not that I ever did. But I want to say to you, giving back to the Lord, our husband, what he deserves, and being a faithful steward over the rest is just the basic stuff, y'all. And listen, some of us are here on a Monday night and yet... We can't be trusted with that. Some of us in this room just need to face the fact our husband can't safely trust us because we're in the process of robbing him. And you see, it's not a money thing. It's a character thing. It's a matter of trust. He wants to be able to trust us with the world, with his money, with our time, our talents, our abilities. And a virtuous woman is one who can be trusted. But not only can she be trusted, secondly, she is responsible. I want you to look at verse 12. She will do him good and not evil all the days of our life you know it would be one thing to come to the judgment seat of Christ and have gone our entire christian life having never done evil against him our husband have he never caused his name to be blasphemed because of our sin? Have he never brought reproach or, or, or shame upon him because of our evil behavior? And, and not only would that be one thing in these last days, but man, that'd be a great thing if we could do that. And, and not only would it be a great thing, it would be the right thing. 1 John 2, 1 says, These things write I unto you that you sin not. I mean, how, how unthinkable that we would do our husband evil. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ, and you understand that in marriage, you take your husband's name, and we've taken the name of Christ. We are Christians. We are Christians. And he says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In other words, don't Do your husband evil. And again, I I say, if all of us who are his bride would just do that, to not do him evil, that would be one thing. And again, it would be a great thing, but it's totally another thing to do him good. And I want you to know that your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't just interested in us not doing him evil. I mean, after the price that he paid to make us his bride, for crying out loud, man, that's just a given. We became his bride to do him good. You know, so many people's brand of Christianity centers around what they don't do. And yeah, man, there's a lot of stuff that we need to stop. But there's so much more that he wants us to do. And if we would begin to do the things that he wants us to do, we probably wouldn't have time to do the things he wants us to stop. But it's about doing good. And listen, as his bride, we work like crazy for him. Not to earn his love. Not to win his affection. We work like crazy because... We didn't have to do anything to become the recipients of his love and affection. And because we didn't have to do anything, now, man, we want to work like crazy. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And buddy, we're big on that, aren't we? We need to be. We cannot not earn our salvation. We can't deserve it by works, but typically that's where we stop. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Our works didn't save us. He saved us by grace through faith, but we in that process became his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, say it, Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And again, I say, no, we weren't saved by our works. But now that we're saved because of his amazing grace, we have been saved unto good works. And that was something that God ordained before the foundation of the world. The bride of the Lord Jesus Christ does him good and not evil all the days of our life. The, the Spirit of God expresses that, that same basic idea through Paul, oh, again, over in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, where he says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, Serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You remember those days, y'all? Okay, that, that was our past. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And once again, it could not be clearer. He saved us because of his work on the cross, not by the good works that we do. And again, we are real big and need to be real big on Titus chapter three, verses three through seven. But somehow we always leave out verse eight. And verse eight says, this is a faithful saying. In other words, what I'm about to say, buddy, you can take to the bank And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, Titus, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. You know why? Because we're the virtuous woman, the very bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to do him good and not evil. And notice that last part of Proverbs thirty-one, twelve, All the days of her life. I mentioned our 37th anniversary was last week. Uh, when we got married 37 years ago, we did a little short. A little honeymoon and then we moved out to California to begin uh, our first shot at, at the ministry. So I've been in the ministry. Every time my anniversary comes around, I know how long I've been in the, the ministry. Um, I've been saved now for 44 years. And man, I can tell you this, when it comes to this thing of being a Christian, there are many starters, but there are very few finishers. And, and in fact, just a little tidbit, did you realize that of the 400 leaders in the Bible, 80 of them finished well? Less than 25%. And, and listen, even among the finishers, there are few that do. Their husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, good and not evil. Listen to this again now. All the days of their life. People who aren't up and down, people who aren't in and out, people who aren't back and forth. I'm talking about people who came to the altar with the Lord Jesus Christ and understood what their marriage to him was really all about. And they had enough character and were responsible enough to do him good and not evil all the days of their life in the good times and in the bad times for richer or for poorer in sickness. And in health. And the Lord could count on them in any and every situation. Even when the people at church snubbed them. Even when the leaders disappointed them. Even when no one called. Even when they were overlooked for a position or a ministry even when they didn't agree with the judgment call of the leaders. They still did their husband good and not evil all the days of her life. They, they, they didn't take out on their husband what someone did or didn't do. You know, I've never understood that, man. If what someone did or didn't do can get you to stop serving, you might want to just check who it was that you were actually serving. I ask you tonight: Are you responsible? Can your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, count on you? Do you finish what you start? Do you see the job through? Does the Lord Jesus Christ know in his heart tonight that you will do him good and not evil all the days of your life. Man, I can tell you as a husband, there's never been a day where I've doubted that of my wife. And you know what? I'm the happiest dude you ever met. But if I had to go through my life worrying about that, wow. Bride that does him good and not evil all the days of our life. I I, I love what it says about John the Baptist in Acts chapter 13 and verse 25. It says, and as John fulfilled his course. (laughs) Listen, y'all, as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a course to fulfill. And it is a marathon, not a sprint. Paul writes to a a young interim pastor in the church in Colossae in Colossians 4 17. And he says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. That's the goal, y'all. To fulfill our course to fulfill the ministry that we've received in the Lord, to be able to come to the end of our, our life and to be able to say with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. And, oh, Lord, I... Thank you for your supernatural book that explains itself as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And, Lord, I I pray that as we take this practical, dispensational approach to this Scripture, for the next two nights that in the midst of getting all, all of the information about dispensations and us as the church and the the characteristics of the church, Lord, I, I pray that we would be the bride that you called us to be. And once again, that we would leave this week more conformed to the image of our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ.